All right. Well, um, we're going to look at a couple of, uh, at least one story anyway with Saul to also talk about this idea um, that we looked at last week in Hebrews 6.4, just to kind of pick up on that a little bit more, how it is impossible for those who were once enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, have tasted the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come. This seems to me to be describing somebody who's not playing Christianity. Somebody who truly believes, truly was born again. And it says, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now, this is just one of many verses that we're going to try and look at, but um, we, we talked about it last week, so I'm not going to get into it again now outside of just to remind you of what we talked about and then pick up talking about that same type of thing with some other verses. 2 Peter 2.1 says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring themselves swift destruction. Um, it isn't they might be coming, so watch out. It says they will be coming. And even Paul says, after I leave, there are going to be these people who are going to come among and, and plant all these false ideas. And so it, it wasn't like we have this perfect church here with Paul and the New Testament and then we got to wait 100 years for it to get bad. It happened immediately. Immediately we see the devil was after the church. It's just like any time you see somebody who becomes a believer today. You can almost guarantee that they are about to have some trials in their life. Right? Because Satan hates it. And we're in a spiritual battle. And if he sees there's something good happening, he wants to put a stop to it. And that's what happened with the early church right away. They, the, the devil was after the, the church to destroy it. Jesus came to break down that dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, and it took him all of about 30 years to start getting that built right back up. And now today we have dual covenant theology that basically says there's a different covenant for the Jew than there is for the Gentile. You cannot scripturally support that. And Jesus broke it down, and we built it back up. And sometime, maybe after the Hebrews study, we'll talk about that, because I think it's a very important foundation to look at, because it's, it really affects so many church doctrines that we have today. Church doctrines that aren't biblical, but are built on our own theology, okay? not the Bible. And like I said, that's not the topic of tonight's, but nonetheless, it does fit to these are the destructive heresies that have been brought into the church. Jude 1 says this, For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness. Notice, they turn the grace of God into lewdness. What's that mean? They take the grace that, hey, you're forgiven. Jesus died on the cross for your sins, and they turn that in and they trample on it just like we've been talking about. It's cheap grace. Ultimately, it's that. Go ahead and live how you want to live. Go ahead and worship God the way you want to worship God. Go ahead, because Jesus loves you. 
interesting that there's no, hey, once you come to Christianity, there really are no rules. It's, it's just, if you love Jesus, he's gotten rid of the rules. I, that is, if that isn't a destructive heresy, and if that isn't right from Satan, I don't know. Actually, we, we talked about the occult in, you know, the, the Satanic Bible, right? Aleister Crowley, what is the, the sum of the Bible? He says it's this, do what thou wilt. That's the sum of the law. That's modern-day Christianity. Do what thou wilt. It's all right. You love Jesus? Do what you want. It's okay. You're saved. You're by grace you've been saved. That is straight from the devil. Yeah, I was just talking to my daughter, Selah, about that today, that, you know, we can redefine who Jesus is to the point that it's not Jesus anymore. That, well, Jesus is the only way for me, right. but for, you know, these Buddhists, you know, there's another way, and Allah for the Muslims and whatnot. No. Yeah, who are we to say that our way is right? That is what makes us yeah, yeah. Who, who are we? Well, it's not us. It's God's Word. And God's Word has been proven archaeologically, historically, even within itself, theologically. There's no way anybody could have written the Bible without it being filled with contradictions and filled with historical inaccuracies, archaeological inaccuracies. And so, yeah, do we by faith believe? Yes, but it's faith in the Word of God. And I think the Word of God has upheld scrutiny for the last 2,000 years enough to say we're not putting our faith in, in something that's empty or blindly believing in something. So uh, Jude basically is saying the same thing that Peter is and uh, you know, talking about cheap grace, adding that in there, and that's what we see in the church today. I also find it interesting that uh, the man of lawlessness... Okay, that's the Antichrist, right? That defines most churches today. Lawlessness. Right? You preach the law, you're immediately legalism, legalistic. Okay? Now, I would jump right on that same bandwagon if I'm going to say that I'm going to preach the law for salvation. I'd say that's yeah, legalism because that is true legalism. Doing something to be saved. But that's not what the law teaches. Uh, okay, that, that's not, it wasn't ever the intent of the law even. Even in the Old Testament, it wasn't ever the law that saved them. Because God knew they were never going to be able to keep it. Any more than we can keep it. But it doesn't mean the law is bad. It doesn't mean it's done away with. Anyway, 2 Peter 2, 2 says, And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Okay, so he goes on here, Peter does, saying that many are going to go to be a majority. Well, that's exactly what we see today. It is a majority in the churches today who have compromised on the law of God. Many will follow their destructive ways. Verse 18 continues here in 2 Peter, and it says, For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness... They allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, 
For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. So it shows how this cheap grace is pushed and promoted. Okay? By alluring what the flesh wants. Think about churches today. What keeps pastors from preaching hard truth? Yeah. I mean, anything that's going to sound offensive that's going to keep them from putting their tithe check in the you know, pot or not coming to church, that's what we're not going to preach them. You want to build a church? Tell them what they want. Tell people what they want to hear. What they're, the dictates of their own heart. Teach them that, hey, you don't have to stop watching this stuff on TV. It's okay. Jesus loves you. You're forgiven. Right? Yeah. Oh, oh you want to you wanna continue in pornography? I know it's a bad thing, but it's okay. Jesus loves you. You want to continue in any of these sins? It's all right. Jesus loves you. Rather than us saying, stop, because you're playing with hell. And I think, personally, this is one of the reasons why I think it's so dangerous, this once saved, always saved doctrine. Now, I'm going to talk about it. I don't think it's all wrong, but it's dangerous because there's so many people out there, and when we were evangelizing, I think I told you, I'd see it out on the street all the time. People would come up to me and say, well, I, I pray at night, or, you know, I went to a church camp when I was like six, and I said, I asked Jesus into my heart. So I'm saved. Done. It's done. Now I can go live my life however I want. Okay? Now I realize not everybody who believes in once saved, always saved, preaches that kind of message, but nonetheless, that's how it's received by, I would say, a majority of the hearers of that. Okay? So, what it does is it strips us of conviction. It strips us of repentance. And what is one of the primary things of the Spirit? The Spirit is part, in part, conviction. Right? And so the devil knows that if he can strip conviction away from your life, you're not going to want to or try to change that bad behavior in your life. Why do I need to? You don't have to stop. It's too hard. It's impossible. I mean, men, do you know how, how men, they, they, they're all, I mean, 80% of men are caught up in pornography. And so there's no way you're going to be able to stop this. That's just the way men are wired. Wrong. Okay? That is not true. God is bigger than that. Okay, but these are the kind of things, it's too hard, so it's okay. Good thing Jesus loves you. Well, no, that's a cop-out. And this is what they're doing, is they, they promise you liberty, right? Freedom. I promise you, you are saved. You're on the path of righteousness. Even though you live like hell, you've, you've got heaven awaiting. Yeah, depart from me, you, you know, person who didn't know any better. No, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Well, if sin doesn't matter, then why is Jesus saying that? I do have a good friend, though, that's a strong Christian that believes, he'll argue at length about once saved, always saved. And I said, well, what about these people that try? 
turn away and do this and do that. And, and they, they can't be saved. He goes, well, they were never saved in the first place. That's, just, that's the way he answers it all the time. Yeah. He's just like, so it's just all words. It's just all words. It's pretty, I, yeah, it's pretty subjective. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, I have some dear friends who are diehard, once saved, always saved. Okay? And like I said, as we're going to go here, I'm going to look at some verses that seem to suggest that that's the case. Okay, But we're going to have to be able to come to, you know, how do you do this? Because the Bible cannot contradict itself. Cannot. Jeremiah 7, 8 says, Behold, you trust in lying words and that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered to do all these abominations? Okay, same thing Peter was saying, really. They're going to come to church, do whatever they want, because, hey, they're saved. I'm safe. Look at divorce in our country. I mean, it is rampant because, well, Jesus is going to forgive me anyway, right? I'm free in Christ. It is amazing how much divorce... You go, I can't remember the exact statistics, so I'm not going to say it, but you look at 1920 to today, unbelievable difference. But so much of that is we now have the freedom to do so. Now, I understand there's, you know, marital unfaithfulness and things like that. But I, I think even that's been so abused that, you know, my husband's been this way, and so he's really not being faithful to me. That's not what it's talking about. Okay? But nonetheless, same kind of thing. But he's basically saying here, are you guys going to come to church with your lips, worship me, and then go and curse God or curse others with those same lips? These people serve me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Nothing new from all the way back in the Old Testament to then what we see going on today. The people who go to church, then they leave the church on Monday, and you know they're out in the bars on Saturday night as well, and you know just living a life that you wouldn't know that they were a Christian. Cussing and swearing the best with the rest of them. Same dirty jokes that the world is saying, you know? And what's happened, I think, partly because conviction of the Spirit has been removed from the churches. It's been removed from our, our lives, and as a result, you know, it's all right. I, I'm, I, I'm safe. I'm better than the other guys. Hmm? Yeah, you know, there's somebody worse than me, so I must be okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I think some of those people probably are safe. Probably, you know, are going to be to heaven. They've been building on Jesus with some bad foundations. But, um, not only are they robbed of blessings here on this life, I think they're robbed of blessings in eternity, and some of them probably aren't saved, and the devil has got them feeling very comfortable where they're at. Second Peter 2.20 says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to a true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow, having washed, 
to her wallowing in the mire. So basically, after they've escaped, wouldn't that indicate that they were saved? That after they were saved, they turned from the commandments of God? To me, I look at this verse, and, and maybe some of you can disagree or see a different way of looking at it, but I'm seeing this saying that these people weren't, well, they weren't really saved, but these people were saved believers. Okay? And it says it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, which seems to indicate they knew it. And again, this is New Testament. So in a sense, what would it be saying? The way of righteousness is Yeshua. The Lord saves. And then, not only that, but because again, we can't just say, well, this is a New Testament verse. I, I, I say that all the time. And this is from the New Testament. Just I say that for the hearers. Because to me, it doesn't make any difference if it's old or new. Okay? Because it's, it's God's word and it hasn't changed. I know that that's the way of the church today. But I think the more that you come and study with me, you're going to see that is not the case at all. And so he goes, and he's even quoting the Old Testament to support this New Testament doctrine. He says, a dog returns to its vomit. You know how gross it is to watch that? I mean, I'm sure you've all seen a dog puke all over the floor and go and lick it up. And you just want to say, I cannot believe that dog licked me. All right? It is disgusting. And that is what God sees us as, as we go and return to sin. Okay, we have vomited this sin out. We've gone to Christ. We've known righteousness. And then we go back to this. That's kind of what he said. That's the disgust it is for God to see his chosen people, his, his called ones, going back to sin. Samuel 9.15, Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him commander over my people, Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. This is going to be a living example, I think, of this very doctrine. You know, I love going and looking at Scripture to see, because what the devil does is we need to know our enemy. And so what the devil does is oftentimes we can go and look and see how he worked in this story in the Old Testament, how he worked here, how he worked here, and we get to know the enemy by seeing his M.O. And so we can watch out for it. And so in the Old Testament, it's the same thing for God. We see how God works all throughout Scripture, looking at these different stories, seeing a consistency in his character, in his nature. Well, this is a living example when we see King Saul being called to be king. Okay, uh, Saul was called, first of all, to be king, just as we are called, right? No one comes to Yeshua unless the Father draws him. It is a supernatural calling. Saul here is receiving a supernatural calling. And Saul is being called to be king. To do what? Save the people. Save the Lord's people. The people of Israel. So, he is anointed by God. That spiritual calling, that spiritual blessing has come upon him. 
There's no question about it. As we continue here in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, it says, And Samuel took a flask of oil, poured it on his head, and kissed him, and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you commander over his inheritance? When they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him. Then the Spirit of God came upon him, Saul, and he prophesied among them. So Saul had the Spirit of God come upon him. By the way, that's the same Spirit in the New Testament. And it says that he prophesied. Does, this, does God have his Spirit come upon the ungodly to prophesy? I, you can't say this man didn't have the Holy Spirit because the Bible says he did. In chapter 10, we're seeing that God anointed him. Not Samuel. God. Before, we saw in chapter 9, Samuel is doing the anointing. Here, it's basically showing that Samuel was you know, going through the motions, but it was God doing the work. Because here it says it was the Lord that anointed him. So that takes it away even from it being a human thing. Well, Samuel might have done this, but it really was No, this is God doing the work. Okay. Now, in verse 10, here we see there was a second anointing by the Holy Spirit as well. The Spirit of God came upon him. So this is a real thing. It's of God. It's not a sham. He is a believer anointed by God as far as I'm concerned. It continues then in chapter 13. We're just kind of following Saul's life here a little bit. Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed, that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. So, why did he do this? Because he had a feeling. Boy, if that isn't something that's preached today in the church. Follow your heart. Do what your heart tells you to do. No, your heart is deceitful and wicked beyond cure. Who can understand it? Okay, do not lean on your own understanding. And bottom line, guys, this Black Lives Matter stuff, we're not talking about truth in this. We're talking about people following their heart and their emotions based on not even legitimate facts. Okay? Uh, this is a problem. But anyway, we see later Samuel warned Saul after he was anointed king. He warned him, don't do anything until I arrive. I'm going to come, I'm going to make these sacrifices, so don't do anything. Well, Saul sees that these Philistines are, are, are getting, you know, uh, kind of riled up and People are getting scared and leaving him, and, and he is scared. And so he feels, well, I, I know Samuel told me to do this, but I better, I'm better i going to go ahead and do it myself. Okay, And so he offers this sacrifice, but that was in direct disobedience to God's command. And as I said, the problem was the reason he did it, the reason he disobeyed was to follow his heart, his feelings. And... You know, I've done that many times in my own life. I, I know where I've made decisions after my own heart, feeling the pressure of the world, the pressure of people or whatever, and I know that I really shouldn't do this, but I did it anyway. Okay, peer pressure that, you know, kids go through a lot. The same kind of thing. We're scared of people or whatever. 
Well, anyway, this continues on in verse 13, and it says, Samuel said to Saul, because he did this sacrifice, he says, you have done foolishly, and you have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. So Samuel, the prophet of God, rebukes him. And then he tells him that he is to destroy all of the Amalekites in battle. Okay, even the animals were to be destroyed. So as we jump ahead here to chapter 15, verse 10, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. The word regret here is the exact same word used in Genesis when it says God was sorry that he had made man. And because of that regret, he sent worldwide global flood. He knew it was going to happen. Like he knew from the beginning to the end yeah. everything that was going to happen, but he was, but he still did it and regretted it. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole another doctrine of the predestination and, and all of that, the sovereignty of God, yeah. in which I do believe God is sovereign, and I do believe that He knows everything. He knows it's going to happen, but we have to. I'll just I'll put it this way for now. Do you remember when David? fled from Saul. He was running from Saul and he goes to the king's, I think it was Ziklag, of the Philistines. And he stays there with him. And he pretends to be insane and he's drooling from his mouth and all of this and they think, ah, oh, he's a madman or whatever. Well, anyway, what ends up happening is Saul finds out where he's at. And so David casts lots to find out. He says, will these people hand me over to, the, uh, to Saul? And God answers, yes, they will. Okay? So as a result, what ends up happening is David runs away. First, I think he said, is Saul going to come? Yes. Will they hand me over? Yes. So David runs away. David went away. Saul finds out that David is no longer there, and he returns home. So you have to ask, did the people of Ziklag hand David over to King Saul. No, didn't have to. Why? Because David listened to God and it never happened. Did God know it was going to happen? Yes. So understanding the future doesn't mean that God has it all laid out. He understands and knows and it's beyond my understanding. But my point is, is that it, it's not this predestined thing because he knew, he gave an answer and so you think, well, then this is going to happen because God said it's going to happen, but it doesn't because David obeyed God, and it was almost like Plan B. Then, does that make sense? Yeah, there's that choice that we have. And he doesn't know what we're going to do. And he knows what we're going to do, but nonetheless, he still told me, yes, they will hand you over. But they never had the opportunity because David obeyed. But did he know David was going to obey? I think he did. Yeah, there's, there's a certain burden in omnipotence. Like you create, 
God created a free-thinking, free-willed humanity, knowing what every decision every human would ever make, ever, it's, it seems kind of like a catch-22. Yeah, I know. That it always messes with my head. And I think it will, because I don't think we aren't God. We can't, our brains would explode to understand that. We, we can't. He's smarter than us, which I, I tell people that all the time. And I, I love telling people I don't understand how God did this or why he did, because if I could, it would make me God. If we served a God that you could understand, he would be such a small God that he wouldn't be worthy of worship. And the other weird thing is, why did they have to kill the animals in all these towns? <laughs> I mean, I can see where you want to get rid of all the people, but what was with the animals? Everything they, would they have been unclean, keep, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. they couldn't even keep the stuff sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I always thought that was like, there must be a reason for that. Yeah. But that's... And, <laughs> you know, some people would say because there are satanic things that can attach to physical objects. You know, a spiritual, you know, I don't understand any of that either, but I know the people talk about that. See, Satan has kingdoms. There's a defilement. You know, I know I've... The Bible tells you, do not even touch the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. It, it, it talks about idols and not having these things in your home because they are set apart for destruction. And if you have them in your home, you, like they, are, will be set apart for destruction. So even these idols, you're not even supposed to have them in your home. Why? Is there an attachment spiritually to some of those demonic things? Possibly. Things that you carved out of wood, why do you worship these things that are carved out of wood and then burn the rest of it or something? Yeah, you know, But they yeah. still have some power, apparently. Yeah. And, you know, when we went to Egypt, that was one thing. I didn't bring back any of those heads because I, the first time I went to Egypt, I did. And I ended up grounding those things up and throwing them outside because after learning some of these things, I thought, I don't want any of these, you know, idols of pharaohs and whatnot in my home. I just don't oh, want it. Oh, yeah. You know? And, and honestly, a lot of those are gods. You know, the was Anubis or whatever, the dog thing. And, you know, Anubis those are, are gods. Osiris is a big one. And, and so they are gods. So I don't want that in my home. But anyway, uh, when this word regret is used, anytime you see that word in Hebrew that's used there, it precedes judgment. What that tells me is Saul is in trouble. Okay? It is not a good thing to see that word in the Bible. It always precedes judgment. And then it says there, for he has turned back from following me. What does that mean to turn back? Turn away, which means what? What, did, what? what do you have to do to turn away? So you have to make a decision to consciously do different than what you were doing. Which means obey. Yeah. So, in other words, if he had turned back, it means he is disobeying. Would that truth stand for the church today? That if we're disobeying God, that we are turning back from him? Or is that just for Saul's case here? Verse 13 continues and it says, And Samuel sent, went to Saul. Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandments of the Lord. I love this. He's justifying himself. He knows he's been disobeying God. But he tries to find 
away and just it, it's almost like if I say it it's going to be true right we don't ever see that happening today do we but Samuel said what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear Saul said well they brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed well, God said destroy everything and he's like, well, we, we're going to sacrifice these, but the rest, yeah, we utterly, utterly destroyed it. Okay. Well, to me, this is just like those who come and say, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name. And he says, depart from me, you work of iniquity. He is delusional. Like the churches today, they are delusional. Saying, oh, we're following God. We love you, God. We're, we're keeping your commandments. And yet, you go and look in their bookshelves, their TV, their, their Netflix queue, whatever the case. Are they really obeying God? Probably not. Okay, I, I go down and I look, and frankly, I mean, in the last 10 years of my life or better, and I'm looking at my understanding of Christianity, and it appalls me to think of how much I have turned away from God's commandments, and I've worshipped Him the way I wanted to, when I wanted to, how I wanted to, that I get to do just like Saul does, and say, well, I, 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 I'm, I'm obeying God. I have done all what you said. You know, I utterly destroyed this other sin in my life, but I've kept on to this one, and I can justify it, just as good as Saul can. Somebody gave a sermon once, and I wrote, Saul did 99% of what God asked. God said he rebelled. Partial obedience equals rebellion. Was that you? Remember? I don't know who it was. No, I don't know. <laughs> but I, I mean, it is. Partial obedience is rebellion against God. Now, again, I don't want to put you in the category of saying, okay, well, then I have to be obedient 100%, and if I ever screw up, I'm going to hell, and God's going to remove his spirit from me. It's not what I'm saying, because otherwise he would have removed his spirit long, long time ago, because I fail all the time. That's the beauty of the covenant, the new covenant, Yeshua taking my sins away. However, I can't use that as cheap grace and then say, well, I've got that forgiveness, so now let me go do what I want anyway. I better have a heart for Jesus. I better have a heart to do what's right. Yeah. So how a man after his own heart. How do we or or do we, maybe that's the question, how do we sniff that out? How do we know the difference between someone who Or even in our own self. Had, exactly. Yeah. Has their daily struggles versus someone who is living a lot like, the heart is deceiving. I mean, that, that very simple. To be a difficult line to it's the Word of God, period. Now, that doesn't mean that you can just go read your Word and boom, there it is, and I get it, but I think that there have been many things. I'm just, I, I use this example all the time because I just think it's one of the most obvious. Christmas. Where does it say that we're supposed to celebrate Christmas in Scripture? It doesn't. Matter of fact, it actually tells us not to. Right? Not to follow the ways of the pagans. Okay, nobody 
Not a scholar in the world will tell you that Jesus was born on December 25th. I challenge you to find a scholar, and even the most liberal theologian would not tell you that Jesus was born on December 25th. The only reason Christmas is on December 25th is because that's when we worship all these pagan gods, Zeus, Mithras, okay? Ra, the sun god in Egypt was worshiped on that day. Because you see at that point, the sun's start, the days get longer and it's the sun, so we worship the sun. Coins minted from Constantine in 325 AD literally say on them, the day of the unconquerable sun god, Mithras. Okay, Constantine, the, the guy that united us with under Christianity. He was putting together mm -hmm. common culture. He was, yeah, he wanted, he was just, he was playing the game, the political game. My point is, is this, I talk about that, and do you know how many people get upset with me in the church? Don't you dare touch my tradition. Don't you dare touch my Christmas tree. Which, in and of itself, is a pagan symbol. Exactly. Like I said, Michelle Turaway, a practicing witch before she became a Christian, cannot believe that Christians have these wreaths because that was one of their things that they used in witchcraft. The wreath. But it doesn't matter. That's not what I think it is. Right? I mean, isn't that what we do? But again... You say, but how do we how do we know? Well, yeah, I, I don't want to deal with that one, Christmas. That's that's too big of a thing for me. So let's not go there because that one's kind of dear to my heart. I grew up with it. I love it. It's a good family time. Don't touch it. I mean, that's I think just one that's so real that applies to just about everybody in the church today. Now, does that mean that if I know a Christian who's celebrating Christmas that they're going to hell? No. I don't believe that. But I do believe that they have compromised on the word of God and what God's word clearly says, especially when he gave us a festival that celebrates it anyway. Okay, the Feast of Tabernacles is the right time when Jesus would have been born on earth. As a matter of fact, it even says that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Dwelt among us. That word dwelt is literally tabernacled in the Greek. So, God has even given us a festival that was pointing to the time that he would come to this earth and tabernacle among us. But we don't want to do that. Well, isn't that Jewish? There we go, that dividing wall of hostility. Remember, the Jews have their things and we have our own. No, 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 no. It's not what Scripture says. But it's what I say, and that's what counts, apparently. Right? Our hearts, our traditions, our cultures, our desires. That's what Saul did. He justified, he did what he wanted to do, and then said, yeah, but I'm still serving God when I do it. I'll set up my Christmas tree, yeah, but I'm still worshiping God when I do it. I'll set up my golden calf, but I'm still worshiping God when I do it, said the Israelites in Exodus 32. Right? I can give you example after example. Jeroboam, I'll set up this altar at Dan so that you don't have to go so far. And I'm going to set up a festival of my own choosing on my own day. And we're going to call it worshiping God. 
and God says it's an abomination. Okay? So that's just one practical example. We go to Scripture, but we have to be willing to say, you know what, God? I want to know truth, and I want to follow what your word says, and I'm done following this church and that church and this church and my ideas and my hopes and my dreams, but I'm going to go to your word, and that's it. And I am willing to follow it because you paid for my sins. You paid for every time that I have failed to keep that word. And because you've done that, I want to know you more. I want to understand who you are. I want to seek you as that precious treasure. And I tell you something, you do that and you start seeking him, he will reveal himself to you in ways that you've never understood. And I've told so many people this, that I've learned when I started doing that and looking at more of maybe, well, I don't like this term but for lack of understanding because I haven't figured out a better one, but the Hebrew root of scripture, which is really just scripture, without all of the baggage that our denominations have put into it. When I started doing that, I learned more about God and the scriptures and the New Testament in two years than I did in my entire life. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think there is an aspect that we have to be careful, though, in the sense that there are people who are just ignorant, and they do love God. They just don't know any better yet because Satan has blinded them so much, and they just don't know. I know I loved God for many years but didn't follow him in a lot of those ways and held on to some of those things and didn't want to know more in some cases. And I see that a lot, is people don't want to know the truth because then they're afraid they're going to have to change. And that's hard. And it is hard to say, Lord, I am willing to give everything to you. And I am willing to search out your word and your truth, regardless of where it leads me. I think it's that willingness that's kind of important to have in our heart. But, yeah. We, we should have a desire that if we do love him, to be willing to say, okay, I'm not going to go after the dictates of my heart. Yeah. If, you're gonna, if you're gonna answer this question, I'll let you move on. But I do have a question on the aspect of Saul and the anointing we're talking about the Holy Spirit, well the Spirit of God being on him, how is that different than him being anointed as king? Because when David David never touched him. He couldn't kill him because he was still anointed even after this time. So where do you make that separation of Saul's anointing as king versus the anointing of God as spirit? Do you think the spirit was just taken? Like, I, 
I think they're two separate but yet connected entities or whatever word I should use. That's probably not the right one. That's a great question. I think that David being, or Saul being anointed as king and Saul being anointed by the Spirit, well, they're connected in the sense that there was an anointing of the Spirit that anoints him as king, but there's also kind of an uh, occupational anointing, you might say. Romans 13, I think, would address some of that today. And it says, you know, to submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority that exists except that which God has established. In other words, President Obama, who I disagree with just about every one of his policies, just about everything that that man did, God had him there for a reason. There is no authority that exists except that which he has established. Therefore, we should submit and respect that authority as long as they're not telling me to do something against God's word. Now, in a sense, that's like saying he's God's anointed. It doesn't mean that he's saved. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. But there is an office that he has been placed in that we are to respect. And so to obey God's commandments is to respect that authority, the position. Not necessarily the person, but the position. So respect the office a lot. The office, yeah. Yeah, like yeah. the Secret Service. Like they didn't like him or whatever, but they respected the office. Yeah. And so Saul wouldn't, wouldn't touch him, not because he was, I think, a saved man at that point, but because he was appointed by God. And so to go against, as Roman says, to go against that authority is to go against that which God has established. And so, if God has allowed some evil president to come into our midst to bring the country down, it's because he wants to bring judgment on our country because it's what we need and it's what we deserve. And I shouldn't fight against God. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't can't you know fight politically, vote, do whatever you know needs to be done to do those types of things, but it. It's just to say that we don't go outside of God's commandments in doing so. Does that make sense? I still feel like he was anointed with oil by a prophet, and I see that as being different than holding a, a position of authority. I guess I it is different, but they're connected. They're connected, but they're also separate, too. I think you still have that anointing as authority, even if you remove the anointing of the spirit, the, the spiritual aspect, the office aspect still remains. All right. It continues here, 1 Samuel 15, verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Now, Samuel, I, I, I don't know if it's the rebellious spirit in me, but I kind of like that. Samuel, Saul is up there just boasting about how he's obeyed God and whatnot, and Samuel just is basically, shut up. Because <laughs> he knows what's coming. He but knows, this yeah. It. This is it for Saul. Saul has no idea. And the rest of his life is a living hell after this moment. Uh, yeah, it is. And that's, that is why Samuel wept the night before, because he saw all of this coming. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, Samuel knew. And it should make us weep. So Samuel said, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribe of Israel? So he was humble. When you were little in your own eyes, not like when, you know, everybody else thought you were. He said, when you were little in your own eyes, because keep in mind, he wasn't a little guy. This guy stood a head taller than everybody else. So even though he was this big guy, he had a humble heart, a humble spirit. Did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. This is the second time Saul's trying to justify himself. Even though God's word is clearly saying one thing, he's trying to make it say what he wants it to say. This is just like the people, I think, in the church today who are claiming Christianity, but you know, are making any kind of excuses for disobedience. You know, ignoring what God says, but we twist it to make it fit what we want it to say. Okay, abortion is a great example. I, I'm appalled at how many Christians will support it. Well, I'm against abortion, but if the woman's life is in danger, well, is that what God said? It's such a strong Yeah, it, it is. I mean, we can look at so many different arguments. Creation. The compromise on creation. Well, I believe God created, but I think that he used millions of years to do it. I believe he used this ungodly, pagan foundation okay, that's so illogical, so anti-God, but I believe he used that to do it. You know, homosexuality, I mean virtually everything that we could do. I've heard Christians try to justify pornography. I mean, because it makes their marriage better. <laughs> this is... Okay, can I just make a disclaimer? Those oh. cookies are not mine. Not that disclaimer bottle. I was like, what are you talking about? Good timing on that one. Oh my God! <laughs> I was talking this week with my family how frustrated I get sometimes because I feel like I'm a lone ranger out here sometimes. Well, you're but way I, out ahead of us, I'll say that. Not, <laughs> We're trying to keep up. It's not ahead of you. It's, it's I feel like I'm the only one sometimes standing against all of the evils that are going on in the church. When I want to be out there just lifting up Jesus and saying, look what he's done. I'm spending all of my time saying, what are you doing? I'm, all, I'm saying, shut up. Just like Samuel is here. You be quiet and listen because what you're doing is not right. And I don't know if maybe I'm feeling more of that in recent weeks because of all of this social justice stuff going on. Um, all of the people buying into this COVID-19 propaganda. I don't know what it is, but I just, I want to shake people and wake them up. Because the, well, they're already because Satan is active and he has put you here for such a time as this. Walking it. And I think that's why I like verse 16 here. Just be quiet and listen. 
Stop flapping your gums and look at what God says. Stop looking to your own heart. And it just it's frustrating to me because I feel like I'm putting myself out on a ledge. And nobody... It's not true. You're, well, raising, you're raising us up. Well, and I pray that God is. And I, and I know his word will do that. I know that I don't have the best way of saying things. I'm not the best speaker. And I, I come across harsh. And maybe some people even told me I come across arrogant or whatever. I'm sorry if that's what I do. That's not my goal. My goal is to speak with the authority of God's word, his authority, not mine. Period. That's all I know how to do. My life verse is Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. And it says that God's word is in my heart, like in my bones, like a fire. A fire basically pent up in my bones. He says, I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I feel like if I hold this in, I'm going to explode. I, I'm literally going to die. My heart is going to... If I can't speak truth and try and wake people up. That, that If I can't do that, or if, I, if I'm if i silenced, I might as well just be dead. That's, that's how I feel. Isn't that a prophet? I don't know what it is. All I know is it's very frustrating. Well, you have to, you have to look at the, how that word is received, though, and understand that if everyone was happy and sunshine and rainbows about it, you know, you'd be doing it Because the Bible clearly says if you're... If you're advocating for my name correctly, the world will hate you. So, as as frustrating it is as a human being, understanding that the more you are fought against in that message, likely it's because you're being hypocritical. Well, I think there's truth in that, but I don't want to find comfort in that either, because, you know, Jehovah Witnesses, as an example, they use that as proof that they're doing what's right. They go and knock on a door, and every time the door is shut in their face, they consider that a notch on their belt as a success because God said you will be persecuted. And so it's a blessing that they are persecuted. And so just because we're persecuted doesn't mean we're right. Yeah, totally. But, but I know what you're saying. There is truth in that. If we are preaching the word, we will. But we have to go back. It's the word that's going to make me feel that I'm right, not the fact how people treat me or anything like that. It's got to be the word. It is my approval. <laughs> <laughs> well, going on to verse 22, it says, So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. So, our disobedience, it's like being a witch. It's witchcraft. It's an abomination. That shows you how serious disobedience is in God's eyes. Shows us how we all deserve to go to hell. If it wasn't for Yeshua, Jesus, forgiving us. That's how serious sin is. I see such a parallel to this moment. And at the spot where it talks about um, everyone talking about how they did all this work for God and cast out demons in his name and says, get away from me. It's, I, it's, it's the exact same situation. 
Yeah. Well, I don't see. He must be miserable all the time because if we're making him upset as Christians trying to follow him, and then there's all this other ugly stuff going on in the world that we can't even hardly our own selves grasp in our heads that it hurts us, and we're hurting him because we're not like how he must not be happy very much. <laughs> I can tell you this, I don't see a great future for our country, and I think we deserve it. Well, the world. At this point. I mean, I don't and know. by that, I mean we, we deserve not a good future. If that, that maybe could be taken wrong. We deserve the wrath that we're getting. I am convinced of that. Oreo, Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Apology was the, whose line was that? Oh, yeah. I mean, how true is that? Well, we are we are beyond those nations. Every time a nation is given over to judgment and to the wrath of God, whenever they're given over to their sins, there's always a sexual revolution and then a homosexual revolution, which we see. Rome, that was true. Rome, yeah. Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, there's a reason why we call them Sodomites for two millennia. Yeah. yeah. is given over to itself, judgment will come. And it's those two things happen, and then it's usually straight downhill. Now, I like to think God still looks at our nation as he did both Sodom and Gomorrah at the time where Abraham was arguing interceding. with God, interceding. If there's not 40 people left, we need to spare the city 30, 20, 10. I'd like to think there are still enough people who follow him in this nation to spare it, but I do see that number dwindling every day. Which goes yeah. back to, yes, you're right, but what do we do? How do we do? How do we pray? What do we pray for? How do we prepare? All those thoughts are bombarding, like, yes, yes, I see, yes, I agree. Now what? Now what? Preach the gospel in earnest. That's the only thing that's ever going to... I've sat and I've thought about this whole thing for several weeks, month, and the only answer I can come up with is we don't, this nation doesn't have a skin problem. It has a sin problem. And the only thing that is going to change that. That's good. <laughs> I, I stole from Bodie Bob. Okay. okay. <laughs> I like that. The only thing that is going to change that is the gospel preached in earnest. So that hearts can be changed. We can sit here and argue about black lives and all lives and abortion and homosexuality. It doesn't matter. We can we can we can try to fix the outside. That doesn't do anything. You can't change their minds. Yeah, we can argue on Facebook, but that is not going to do anything yeah. unless people have the word of God in their hearts and Jesus as their savior. Their hearts not going to change. And unless we repent. Right. That's not going to happen. Yeah. They won't receive the gospel. Enraged Grant over. My third son over here. <laughs> so, hey. Everybody watching. I didn't say I didn't have more. <laughs> but, the bottom line. Number one. Always will be. Ha, 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 ha.
maybe I should clarify that too, shouldn't I? Anyway, uh, verse 24 continues, And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, finally, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people. There's the reason. Fear of people. Galatians 1.10, Do I seek yet to please men? I should not be a servant of Christ Jesus. Okay? I've said that many times. That's just a, that's one of those verses I have to remind myself a lot because, guys, I'm just like you. There are so many times I don't want to stand on truth because I know that it's going to offend somebody. You know, I don't want them to not like me or whatever. But I always am reminded of this verse that I've got to speak truth. He says, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So Saul asked Samuel for forgiveness. He didn't. But what I find interesting is who was he looking for? He was still fearing people. He was asking Samuel to forgive him. He never asked God to forgive him. So is that not true repentance? I don't think it's true repentance to ask. It's just like Joseph. When Joseph was, you know, that woman, Potiphar's wife or whatever, you know, leaves, takes his cloak and he runs. He, before he said, I can't do this because I would sin against God and against man. But he realized, if I sin against them, I'm sinning against God. Sin is an offense against God, not people, ultimately. And we need to realize that, that if we're hurting somebody else, it's not just them that we're hurting, we're hurting God. I mean, it's, it's an offense against Him. So if I disobey, you know, it's just like when my parent, my kids disobey me, which hardly ever happens. <laughs> if my kids disobey me, they're not so much disobeying me as they're disobeying God. Remember Samuel, when they, they were asking for a king, God says, it's not you they've rejected, it's me they've rejected. But by saying there's no such thing as once saved, always saved, even if he would have asked God? Well, I think there's where that predestined, even if he would have asked, I think if he would have, but the question is, could he anymore? I don't know. Because then there's that, can you, how many times can you go back to him? <laughs> yeah, and I don't know. But again, that is that, that God's foreknowledge, that they won't, because they can't, because he's not going to offer it anymore. Is that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to where he no longer oh, he offers? Because I cannot, I truly believe that's a good doctrine, that I don't have the power to repent without the power of God in me to do oh, so. Wow, yeah, and so the, the blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, he removes that from me. I no longer have the power or ability in my own free will to repent. So Samuel, interestingly, never sees Saul again until the time of his death. And then Saul even had to go to a witch to try and talk to Samuel later, the witch of Endor. That whole proverb that we just said before, a dog returning to his vomit. So 
Second Samuel seven fifteen says, "But my by my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul." Talking about David, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So David, he says, "I'm never going to take my spirit, my mercy from him, like I did take it away from Saul." Remember, before Saul goes to talk to the witch, what does he said? He, he said. God's not answering me anymore. God's not talking to me anymore. Which seems to indicate that he was trying to, but probably for the wrong reasons, just like he was trying to get Samuel before. He said, pray for me, Samuel. And Samuel says, no, I won't. And then later, you know, Saul reaches out and even tears the robe of Samuel. I think that what Saul wanted is he wanted praise in the people. Because he even said, come back with me and worship with the people so that the people can see that what Saul was still worried about was what the people were going to think of him. The prophet, this guy's, you know, he's elevated in society. What are the people going to think if Samuel isn't supporting Saul? And so he said, just, just come with me so that the people can see that you're still with me. I even think his repentance is was really not a repentance there. When it's, oh, okay, you got me, I sinned. You know, it was just, okay, I, I can no longer illogically stand, you know. And that's what he did. And, and so this is what's going on, I think. So when we look at this verse in Hebrews 4 again, I think this, as I said, is a, uh, a real-life example of what Hebrews 6.4 is talking about. Now, both Saul and David were called, both were anointed, both prophesied, and both of them fell. We could go look at another story where David had a man murdered. Yeah, I was thinking about that. That's pretty serious. It seems, it seems more serious than forgetting to slaughter cows. Yeah, and this is after being anointed by God, both being called by God both being kings, both prophesying. Yet David was saved. There you go. Because of true repentance. But he also offered it again. Or he also offered his spirit again. Right, because I don't think David had ever fallen fully outside of. He was following the dictates of his heart. But he still had a heart for God, just like we do all the time. We have a heart for God, but yet sometimes we fall because we're tempted. We, we go a direction. But we know that our heart with God is right with him. And David, when confronted with the sin, acts completely opposite that Saul did. Saul makes excuses and tries to justify himself twice. Just like the church does all the time with my example of Christmas. I can't tell you how many excuses I've heard about that. To justify it and try and make it God's word. David, on the other hand, he, when he's rebuked by Nathan, confesses his sin and is grieved. He says, for my iniquities, he says in Psalm 38, have gone over my head. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are full of inflammation. And there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan 
because of the turmoil of my heart. This is David's response to Nathan. That's repentance. My prayer would be that this is what the church would do and say today, rather than saying, oh, it's fine, I'm safe. It's all right, it's not a big deal. Jeremiah 8.12 says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall in the time of their punishment. They shall be cast down, says the Lord. Okay, Cheap grace doesn't cause you to blush. And our nation has forgotten how to blush. Transgender, homosexual. I, what would make our nation blush today? I can't even think of anything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Psalm 32 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Again, this is David speaking. The opposite of, of Saul. He confessed his sin to Samuel. He says, And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. Now I find this verse kind of interesting for a couple of reasons. One, as I mentioned, confessing to God, but also that he's also kind of almost like Jesus praying for us. I'm saying this for everyone who is godly, that you shall... Pray that we would pray to him in our time of trouble, when he may be found. Because there's a time when the flood hits, when he may not be found. It's too late, that 11th hour kind of thing. And if people in America today are just waiting for everything to hit the fan, I don't think you're going to be ready. You will not know how because you have not been spiritually prepared. You have not been training yourself in God's word and in righteousness, and you're going to be in deep, dark trouble. That we need to be praying to him when he may be found. We need to be examining ourselves now and saying, Lord, I've got this sin in my life. I've got this lust. I've got this greed. I've got this uh, anger. I confess it to you, this prayer, and we pray it to God and, and seek him now when he may be found. But also to remind you, David's sin was murder. And he found hope in the promises of God. And therefore, it doesn't matter what we've done or how ugly I am or have been. I find my hope in the promises of Yeshua that he has taken away my sins. And that's going to kind of bring me, start bringing me full circle on this once saved, always saved. Guys, I think I'm saved and I always will be. Let me give you this verse, and then I'm going to explain a little more. 1 Kings 15, 5, Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. That's the kind of life repentance leads to. That Can, can you imagine being able to say that? That God would say that of us? that we did what was right in his eyes, obeyed him, except in the issue of that time that he kicked the cat when it, you know, scratched his leg. Whatever. 
You know what I'm saying? Wow. But this is the result of repentance. That God transforms us. He renews our mind. He changes us. And he gives the ability, because of his spirit in us, to make those better choices. Okay? Go and sin no more. That's what Jesus told that woman, right? Or that was it the man that he healed from blindness. Yeah. Go and sin no more. And so, when we fall, I have hope. Okay. Again, I, I'm not preaching legalism here. I'm preaching hope and I'm preaching Yeshua and that we are forgiven. But I'm not going to preach cheap grace either. I, I'm going to preach that we do need to examine our lives and take, take this world more seriously because this isn't reality. Reality is in the spirit realm. Seems to be, and that's what that Hebrews verse said. It is impossible for those, okay, if you don't repent, and that's what Saul happened, and Saul cried out to God later, but I think with wrong motives, but God would not answer him anymore. When David did, and he repented, God answered, and not only answered, lifted him up and said, this is the, the kind of man I want you to be. A man after God's heart. But those are the differences that we see, but it all depended on their re response to their sin. Now, I'm running late, so I'm going to just do this as far as this once saved, always saved. I'm going to give you some verses that you can do for homework. Okay? So that you can see that there's a difference, and you can find scriptures to support either side of this, okay? Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 25 through 28. John 10, 27 through 29. John 8, verse 12. And also in John 8, verses 34 through 36. And verse 51. John 6, 58. And John 6, 37 through 40. As you look at those verses, you're going to see nobody can snatch them out of my hand. You're going to see, you know, things to, to, to make your salvation sure, things like that. But I, I do believe that I can give you so many more examples probably of the fact that people have fallen away, do fall away, and all of that. So how do I make sense of it? Right or wrong, I don't know. I'm just going to tell you the way I've made sense of it. God is faithful. He is faithful. I am not. In other words... Once I am saved, God is never, ever going to pull that away from me. But I have a free will that I can. I can walk away. 
you know, we talk about the elders, and the elders should not be new converts, or else they might be deceived by the devil and, you know, basically fall away, it says in Timothy. Again, one of those that seems that they can. But he talks about being new converts. I think that there was a time in my life when I know I was saved in high school and in college that I easily could have walked away from the Lord by getting in with the wrong crowd, making some other bad decision, whatever. I have a hard time believing that I would do that now. I think that there was a process, and I can see why you wouldn't want to be a new convert. But I have studied God's Word. I've heard all of these arguments against God. I'll be honest, I can't imagine anybody coming up with any argument now that would make me doubt the Word of God. I can't imagine seeing any miraculous sign or any archaeological evidence or any scientific discovery that would cause me to doubt the Word of God anymore. Because I am so sure of what I believe. I am so sure of the truth that I would not believe something if it was right in front of my eyes. Call that blind faith, you know, whatever, I don't care. That's where I'm at. I've done my homework. I know. I'm saved. I know when I die, because of Yeshua, I am going to heaven. Period. I have absolute assurance of my salvation. But there was a time in my life where I knew I was saved, but I had some doubts here and there, maybe because of my actions and behaviors and whatnot, and I think that I could have been swayed one way or the other. But by God's grace, he was guiding me all that time. And so the only way I can make sense of these verses, some saying this, some saying that, is that God is always faithful. And what he's saying is that he will never, but you aren't always going to be faithful. You still have a free will, always have. Just like we talked about you know, when I preached on the Garden of Eden, he put that tree in the center of the garden because he wanted you to have a choice. It's always been about a choice. Here are the Ten Commandments. Okay? There are blessings and there are curses. You get to choose. Joshua, choose this day whom you will follow. You can be blessed or you can be cursed, but it's your choice. God is a gentleman. He's not going to force it on you. And so, just like my salvation wasn't God forcing my salvation on me, my lack of salvation or losing my salvation isn't because God is taking it from me, it's because I'm walking away from it. And so, I think that that once saved, always saved is God's faithfulness to me. Once saved, not always saved is my unfaithfulness to God. Does that make any sense? It's the only way I can make sense of it. Maybe it's not the maybe that's not the right answer. I don't know. I just know that, like I said, I could give you all night long scriptures that seem to be talking about we can fall away, and just a few of them that seem to be talking about assurance and and the other thing. And so, by God's grace, and I think as I said before at the beginning, I think it's important then that we don't. Give people that cheap grace. Oh, you're, you're safe. Oh, now you're always going to be safe. So, so it, it, it's okay. Just uh, go ahead and live your life now. 
You've stripped them of the fear of God. You've stripped them of conviction of the Spirit because you've given them a safety net. And it also, I think, has the danger... Um, well, it just left me. I had it in my mind and it just left me by the other thing. But anyway, um, I'll leave it at that. Any last final comments, questions, thoughts? I just can't get over the idea of just, is there a more tragic character in all of Scripture than Saul who had I mean he, he just had absolutely everything and just boy if you want an example of how to screw it up and keep it that way yeah it's Dude, I would I would put him in a, in a close walking, second. Like walking around I would put him in a close <laughs> second. Yeah, there's a man that walked with Jesus. I don't see any evidence necessarily that he ever had the Spirit of God there, but boy, the man yeah. walked with Jesus. As far as according to the church, he would have looked like a saved man, even when they said, you know, uh, one of you will betray me. None of them were going. I'll bet it's Judas. They're all. Is it me? <laughs> You know, and so that shows you the subtlety of the devil for sure. But again, Judas, the same kind of thing. He never repented of his sins. He took it in his own hands, his own guilt. He he's clearly felt guilty about it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so. that always is a whole other rabbit trail. Pharaoh's heart to God, you know. Yeah, and I, I think it's just a matter of God doesn't make them do it. He knows what they're going to do, and he, he has free will. But does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Eventually he does, yes. Why? Because they won't listen anymore. Your time is up. You have blasphemed the Holy Spirit enough, and you no longer are going to have an opportunity to repent. I don't care what I do, what miracle you see. If I stood right in front of your face right now, you will not Repent. So he hardens his heart after they already turned from him, is what you're saying. Yes, yep. And well, this is exactly the best what we see. And I've heard of that so far because it keeps coming up to me because it hasn't been solved in my head yet. But that was one of the best. <laughs> and this is exactly what we see in the book of Revelation. We see that they hide from God, they hide from him in caves. And it still says, and still they would not repent of their evil deeds. After all of these terrible things, they know they're even coming from God, and they will not repent. Why? Because they can't anymore. Those people are alive today. Yeah, right I now. think there's a good chance of it. Absolutely. So, let's close in prayer. Oh, Yeshua, you are so wonderful, and you deserve all our glory, all our praise, all our worship. Um, thank you for taking all of our sins. Thank you for just giving us this word to convict us, to teach us, to, to strengthen us, to give us hope. Lord, give us an understanding of this. And I just pray that as we can talk about these tough issues, that we would be able to just not look at it from a perspective of our churches or our culture or this world but a perspective of just your word, to just be willing to surrender and lay down everything, all of our presuppositions, 
and just go and let you be our teacher, the true rabbi. So keep us safe as we leave now, and may you just continue to bless this time as we meet, and may you cause it to grow in spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.